to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. I am your host, Daniel DeBreeze, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Colgate Assistant Professor of Sociology and Anthropology, Ines Abdul-Malak, and Syracuse University Professor of Sociology, Madonna Harrington-Meyer. Professor Ines and Professor Harrington-Meyer have collaborated to publish two recent works, with the first in 2016 that they co-edited, titled Grandparenting in the United States, and their most recent work co-authored, titled Grandparenting Children with Disabilities, which is now published by Springer International Publishing. Professor Harrington-Meyer has published more than 50 scholarly articles, Her work appears in journals including American Sociological Review, Journal of Health and Social Behavior, Gender and Society and Social Problems. Her research has been reported in the New York Times, NPR, U.S. News and World Report, and many others. In 2016, she was named the winner of the American Sociological Association Section on Aging and Life Course, Matilda White Riley Distinguished Scholar Award. Professor Ines's work focuses on understanding how social structures impact the aging processes of individuals over the course of one's life, with a special emphasis on U.S. Caribbean immigrants. Professor Ines was a registered nurse before earning her bachelor's degree in environmental health and a master's of public health in epidemiology and biostatistics from the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, and her master's and PhD in sociology from Syracuse University. Professor Ines is a recipient of the Outstanding Teaching Assistant Award and Best Doctoral Prize at Syracuse University and she began her teaching career at Colgate University in 2018. Professors, welcome to 13. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to jump right into our uh, 13 questions here. And um, the first, I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork here and start out by asking Professor Ines, um, tell me a little bit about your journey from being a registered nurse to um, becoming a a member of the teaching faculty at Colgate. All right. Thank you for that great question. So I will give you the abbreviated abbreviated versions, and this is (laughs) supposed to be only 13 minutes (laughs) because it might take you a while. Um, So I migrated here from Haiti um, at the age of 13, and then I I went not the regular linear path going to college. So I was one of those uh, untraditional students. So I took courses at the local community colleges in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and then uh, eventually I had a degree in nursing and I worked as a registered nurse um, for for years. And then just life took me. I ended up moving to Beirut, Lebanon. And when I went there, I enrolled at the American University of Beirut and got an environmental health degree and then also got my first master's in public health. And life again happened. There was a war and I ended up moving back here to the, the States. And when we just happened to find ourselves in Syracuse, and after a few years of living here and working at Upstate Medical University doing clinical trials, I decided, uh, I mean, I had, there was a moment in my life where I knew sociology was definitely a discipline that I am <clears throat> attracted to. So when I was living here, I decided to go to um, Syracuse University. So I got my master's in sociology and then my PhD 
in sociology. Um, and I work at Syracuse a little bit, adjuncted, and also working as a research associate. And then I ended up getting a job at Colgate. And nice. Yes. <laughs> Good. Now, I'm curious, how did you two get together to collaborate on this research? So what is the story of uh, Professor Ines and Professor Harrington Meyer uh, getting together here? It's quite an interesting story. So I started at uh, Syracuse University as a grad student. Um, and usually your first year, um, you are automatically assigned an advisor based on your research in interests. Um, actually, Professor Harriton Meyer was not my advisor the first year. And then uh, my second year, my third semester there, I, I was taking a class with her on research methodology. And it was literally instant attraction. I love her style of teaching and I love like she's very straight to the point. And in, this is when I decided that actually this should be my advisor. So I was, I was thinking of asking her to be my advisor and also she was looking for a TA. She thought of asking me to be her TA. So it was a mutual connection ah. we had right away. And, and then while I was working uh, as her TA, she was working on a book. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm trying to remember the title of the book, but it's, it's about juggling. Uh, grandmother about juggling different <laughs> juggling. <laughs> oh, tell me the title of the book, Madonna. It's called Grandmothers at Work. <laughs> and Inez was very quick to tell me some of the shortcomings of that book and how she could have improved them. <laughs> that made me really want to work with her on my next book. <laughs> well, she had me looking over her book. Just she needed a new fresh eyes. She had already done with the project, just fresh eyes, just looking into editorial contents and stuff like that. And, and when I remember going into her office, I was a little bit shy to tell her that. I said, uh, you know, your book is great, but it's missing a little bit of diversity. It's missing <laughs> um, immigrants, grand, grand, grandmothers, and, you know, and then she was, and then she was so great about it. Her response was like, we should work on a project together <laughs> um, wow. to, to uh, remediate that situation. So we ended up um, working on that, uh, that first book we published together. So we make sure that that book has at least voices from different um, segments of our society. So I, in that book, I published a chapter where I interviewed um, mostly Caribbean grandmothers who were also providing care for their grandchildren. So, and then we've been working together since. We have a great um, working relationship, but we also happen to be really good friends. Nice. So you both collaborated on this uh, recent research uh, and, and the new book, Grandparenting Children with Disabilities. And the abstract of that book starts out by saying that childhood disability rates are increasing, but neither the federal government nor employees have kept pace by providing benefits that help families respond. Given the dearth of childcare options, many families turn to grandparents. Every day in the U.S., millions of grandparents provide a wide range of care for grandchildren with disabilities. And to understand the types of care grandparents tend to provide and the impact of that care on grandparent financial, social, emotional, and physical well-being, you interviewed 50 grandparents who are caring for grandchildren with disabilities. I guess broadly, what did you find during these conversations? Was there any themes? We, we found tremendous diversity. We found grandparents who were very easily handling employment, 
their other responsibilities, their other social life, and taking care of the grandchildren. And we found grandparents who were absolutely overwhelmed because they needed way more support than they were getting. Uh, I think the main finding we have is that the experiences people have are very, very diverse. How did you find these people? I'm curious what the selection process was like. How do you go about finding a a sample of grandparents caring for grandchildren uh, with disabilities? That seems like a very difficult group to go out and, and survey. Yeah, I, the fact that our uh, sample was quite diverse, so we were not just interviewing custodial grandparents. That might be a little bit harder to find. Um, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, in the abstract, many grandparents, many grandparents are provi- providing childcare in general. And in, in reality, when a, when a family is dealing with disability, you cannot trust the next door neighbor, uh, 15-year-old, to babysit for you for a date night. So you will rely on family members and grandparents are the lifeline. So the way we recorded, we did snowball sampling. Um, so we will uh, ask people who knows, like I have some friends who happen to be, um, um, they call them special ed teachers locally. So I will ask them if they know any grandparent who might be interested to be interviewed. So I got a lot of references that way to some of my local um, teachers basically and I, and I knew people personally too who might be able to refer me to someone that they know so it, i mean it, it wasn't that hard to find interviewees it was harder to find them to stick to a schedule to be interviewed because again they juggle in so many aspects of their lives some of those grandparents are full-time they work in full-time and they have other responsibilities so that was the i think the most challenging Part of it is really to have them to sit down with us and, and talk. Wouldn't you say the same thing too, uh, Madonna? I would. And I think what I would add is it's important to notice that our sample is not random. We There is no list to draw from. It's not a random sample. It's a convenient sample. So therefore, the book has almost no statistics in it. Okay. We're not going to say 23% said that or 18% said that because our results are not nationally representative. So rather what we're looking for is an in-depth experience of what somebody's day is like. What we're looking for is the story where the grandmother says, I'm up by 5 a.m. and I drive to meet her and I feed her breakfast. And then I put her on the bus and then I pick her up after school. And then I take her to her music therapy and I take her to her doctor appointments. It's that in-depth story that we're looking for from each grandparent when we do the interviews. Very qualitative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very qualitative. And also there was a depth of uh, scholarly works that deal with that. For instance, there are some works that look into parents um, who have children with disabilities or their siblings' uh, uh, perspectives. But the narratives of the grandparents um, are very lacking in the scholarly works. Like people don't give them the credit that they deserve. And we wanted their their voices to be front and center Mm. of this research. So in developing the questions for these grandparents, I'm curious, what were you looking to kind of compare um, between all of these respondents? So I guess what were the, I don't know if there were like certain questions that were like linchpins here, like they're they're the key questions, or is it just a series of questions that help paint a picture of, of what they're facing? I think for us, the book is sort of in two halves. The first half of the book is about all the different types of care you provide. And the range is enormous. Some people are providing very intensive care around the clock care. 
we interviewed one grandmother who actually wears the little girl on a front pack all day long and sleeps with her on her at night uh, to keep her healthy enough that she can live. And so um, we wanted the first half of the book really captures what kinds of care you're providing. It could be financial, it could be supervision, it could be actual hands-on care. And then the second half of the book was the impact on the grandparents. We're both aging scholars. And so we, we, we don't come at this um, focusing on the grandchildren. We didn't interview the grandchildren. We only interview the grandparents. So it's their version of how it affects their social life, how it affects their ability to retire or travel. Mm. What do you think, Inez? No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and this is what we did. Like we literally wanted to hear their story. Like one grandmother that I... I was interviewing, she was a wheelchair in DC and she ended up moving in some small town in Pennsylvania because her grandchild was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And she literally um, joined resources with her daughter to buy a ranch house to be able to wheel the wheelchair. And then and she literally left her job, very lucrative mm-hmm. um, job to move because in that state, they, they sort of had better um, social assistance and it was better for her to be there with her granddaughter. So it's, it's stories like that when you hear um, some sacrifices they make and uh, it, it's really hard heartwarming. And again, it's not all negative. I mean, it's, like we said, there's a mix of responses and those grandparents, they talk really about joy of being a grandparent in general, regardless of disability. So they wouldn't do it if they didn't love their grandchildren. Right. Um, I'm curious too, if there were any factors that stood out as recurring themes um, related to the responses like um, wealth or location or race or gender, or is it too small to kind of understand anything about that? If Were there any themes with respect to any of these, like, you know, the subgroups looking at the, um, I guess, the, the demographics of the groups you surveyed? Um, I mean, again, I mean, the themes of, I mean, you mentioned a couple here, like the theme of location, how people choose where to live because of different resources, different states might have. And the retirement part, um, again, this is the U.S. states, um, <laughs> the, uh, the federal government or even some state government, they don't do really well at prov- providing um, for the people's retirement and you know pension and, and stuff like that. So a lot of p- uh, grandparents have to sort of like, some of them will take money, draw money out of their 401k just to help for that speech therapy because mm-hmm. the insurance is giving the family a hard time. So, I mean, I think like the financial part was literally one of the common theme that I think was running throughout mo- uh, most of the interviews. Um, and, uh, but when it comes to, um, health. So we found that, again, it was mixed. Some grandparents were really happy that they had the grandchildren that keep them active because they run in after the grandchildren. And now they, they are aware that they have to cook a certain way, you know, healthier because of the grandchild is with them a lot. Um, but at the same time, we do hear some exhaustion, like some parent, grandparents will say, you know, I'm, I'm up very early on and I'm up, I, I stay up very late. Um, so again, it was mixed with responses. 
kind of goes into my next question. I was going to ask, so I'm not really sure how all of this works, but do grandparents benefit from any kind of state or federal programs designed to help disabled children? Um, Or are they subject to a lot more difficulty in getting these services because they're not the, the parent per se, custodial parent, I guess? Most of the grandparents we interviewed were not custodial grandparents. About a quarter of our sample, the grandparents were custodial, either legal guardians or not legal guardians. Um, And there are some special considerations for those grandparents, but most of the families we talked to actually weren't able to get very much support. So they would say to us, oh, we make $20 too much to qualify for food stamps, or we make $80 too much to qualify for Medicaid. Most of the families weren't actually able to qualify. And one of the points we make in the book is how much place matters. If you live in this state, the rules are completely different than if you live in that state. And some families, actually one family, the entire extended family picked up and moved to a different state where there would be better benefits when the child was born with a disability. But that's not something most families can pull off, right? And so um, there are supports, but a lot of the families we spoke to weren't able to get them. Or if they did get them, they were constantly changing. We heard stories such as, well, we had food stamps, but then they took them away, but then they gave them back, but then they made them smaller, but then they made them bigger, but then they made us repay some of the money, and then they made them smaller again. And honestly, to fight with food stamps, the SNAP program, continually on a monthly basis, you wonder if it's worth $125. Is, you know, maybe, maybe your time is better spent elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Similarly with Medicaid, they had to fight a lot to keep the benefits, to get the things covered that they needed. I remember one grandma in particular is telling me that it had become her job to fight with Medicaid. The daughter had said, I can't do it anymore. Mom, you have to do it. So this had become grandma's job. And the the grandchild needed to wear a, a diaper, uh, would, would always need to wear a diaper for the rest of his life. And every single month, Medicaid called to say, does he still need these diapers? And every single month, they would go through this again and say, yes, and he's going to, and please stop calling. So actually dealing with the administrative burden, the red tape became an additional job that grandparents took on. Wow. Were you surprised by any of these interviews? Did anyone say anything that kind of shocked or surprised you before you went in? Or or were most of the responses kind of things you expected to hear? Hmm. I'm I'm thinking about this question. Was anything... Again, because we're both aging scholars, and then especially Madonna has done tons of work regarding the federal state, the welfare state. Um, so we 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 sort of went into it expecting some of those things. But I but I I think the thing that I will say was, I mean, it wasn't the most. It wasn't surprising. We kind of expected that. Like we wanted to have a lot of grandfathers in that story, <laughs> and it was hard to find grandfathers. We ended up with what two, three. <laughs> Maybe four, not very many. Yeah. Not very many. So, so yeah, that was kind of very hard. And we literally wanted to hear from grandfather's perspective. However, the, the couple that we found, I mean, they were, their stories were very profound as well. So it was, it, it added, that added an extra element to the, to the book. Um, so yeah, I think finding grandfather, again, it's not surprising, sort of expected. I think that was the shocking part a little oh. bit. I think for me, one of the more shocking parts were some of the families where there was real denial. So I'm just thinking of this one family, Mary. Um, She told us that the little girl was on track developmentally up until six months. 
And then at six months started to kind of, she said, go backward. And um, she said the chatter was never coming. She didn't look at your eye. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. And she's the maternal. We interviewed the maternal grandmother. She told us that the maternal grandmother and grandfather blamed the lack of development on Mary's daughter, said that she was a bad mom, said that uh, she and her husband, their son, were bad parents. And they went into the doctor and it took, a, it took a full year to get a diagnosis of Williams syndrome and then even longer to get additional diagnoses of ADHD and autism. And once those diagnoses were in place, the paternal grandparents completely severed all relationship with the little girl. Wow. They completely bowed out of the family. So some of those stories, I, I, I guess I knew they might happen, but they were very hard and painful to watch, oh. uh, to, to listen to those stories. And there's another story where um, the little girl had autism and the mom didn't think she did. Well, she thought she did. She thought she would just get better on her own. They had a friend who apparently the child had autism and then it just went away one day. And the mother believed that that would happen with her daughter. So even though the doctors were constantly saying, you need to get her into all these therapies, get her all these help, forms of assistance, they didn't do it. So the grandmother kept offering forms of help and they wouldn't take them. And she finally tricked them. And she said, you know, there's a really, really good private school I'll pay for it if you'll let her go to it. So they let her go. And of course, the minute they got her there, the teachers at the private school said, well, you absolutely have to start all these therapies. And then they finally just started some of the therapies. And the saddest, one of the saddest moments in the whole book, I think, is the in that family, the mom and dad would fix dinner and they would sit in one room and they would put the little girl out in the kitchen with her plate of food by herself every night. Oh, oh and they didn't eat dinner with her. And this the grandmother was beyond upset. You know, she was so upset that this was what was unfolding. So I found those stories very surprising and sad. Wow. Any heartwarming stories uh, come out of the book? Huh. I can think of one story. Uh, um, a, guy, a guy named Paul um, is a grandfather, of course. Um, and so he has his Alex was about five years old with Down syndrome. But with Paul... Paul ended up growing up, had a brother who also had a freak accident and ended up being in a wheelchair. So Paul, because of his brother who had the disability, had been such a, that had pushed him to become like a disability um, advocate. Like he would go to Washington, like he was very active in the disability world um, just for equal access. So when he ended up having his grandson, uh, with with Down syndrome, he was so equipped to deal with it. I mean, he had such a positive attitude, like the way he talks about it. Like, I mean, again, if you, t- you listen to him, the way he talk about disability is the way disability studies people talk about disability. It's not, it's not an ailment. It's not a defect. It's just a different way of doing things. So, I mean, the whole interview. I think I spoke to him for a couple of hours. It was so a bit so positive. And, 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 I, and I kept, so many aspects of that interview kept coming back to me over the years because of his attitude. But again, what happened with his brother and then sort of like, he tra- was trained to have a grandchild with disability. I think there were lots of heartwarming stories as well. I'm remembering one where the parents actually, the grandparents actually hired a lawyer and sued the school district in order to get the child placed in a district that would be more responsive to their needs. And 
the grandparents actually had to pay the private school initially. And then when they won the settlement, they got some money. And instead of paying themselves back, what they did was they hosted a huge party for children who have Williams syndrome. And she said, the grandmother said that the whole family pitched in, everybody did face painting and crafts. And they had this huge party for a hundred people, a hundred families, uh, family members who have somebody with Williams syndrome. And she said they hope to make that an annual tradition. Oh, wow. There aren't a lot of social events for kids with any disabilities where they're invited and where they're welcome. And here was one where everybody there had Williams and all the families did. And, you know, it sounded like it was an incredibly joyous occasion. Wow. I'm curious too, as to um, what maybe if, if anything came out of the research that has sparked new questions, um, you know, a lot of times when you're working on a project, maybe a new a new question or a new idea will come up. Do you think that this work will lead to anything else down the road? I mean, what I'm intrigued to, because I'm a medical sociologist, so what I'm intrigued to know now, I would like to follow up with some of the grandparents or even new research subjects regarding the, how COVID-19 um, is affecting them. Because I know... Many older people, you know, they have special challenges uh, with this pandemic. And some of those grandparents spending time with their grandchildren um, is really what keep them going. So I was thinking like the, I mean, especially at the early stage of the pandemic where people had to, you know, quarantine, you know, grandparents were isolated and that because people wanted to protect them. So I, I'm I, like, this is the new kind of research I'm thinking about. How does that affect uh, the, those grandparents? I think also um, the opiate pandemic as well. So I think about a quarter of our grandparents were custodial grandparents. And, you know, nobody expects to become a custodial grandparent. You raised your children. You think your children are out of the house. And all of a sudden there is a grandchild very often they take these grandchildren overnight. They have no idea that they're going to be called upon. And by morning, they have a grandchild to take care of. And they've got to organize daycare and school and food and homework. And so like Inez, I'm very concerned about those situations in particular with COVID. Some grandparents were in a different bubble, so they couldn't see their grandchildren anymore. But custodial grandparents are in the same bubble and they can't get away. (laughs) They can't get a minute off. And they were already having so much trouble with math homework already before COVID. I can't fathom what they're doing about modern math now uh, when they're teaching it and helping with the homework. I want to shift gears here a little bit. And uh, Ines, I I want to ask you um, specifically a little bit about some of the courses you've taught at Colgate. And I know you've, you've done courses about race, aging, gender, immigration, medical sociology, and research methodology. I'm curious what your favorite course to teach may be and why that is. That's a really great question. Um, My favorite course to teach is Sociology 212, Power, Racism, and Privilege. In that course, I've taught a similar course at SU, so I've been teaching it for a while now, so I have some experience with it. But what I like about that course, it's almost... After every semester, I will get a couple of emails from some of my students. I mean, we're talking about after grades are in, they have no stake in the matter. And they will say things like, you know, I never think about race relation before I took your class. I never thought about inequality 
um, before I took your class. Now um, I feel like I'm equipped to, to talk about some of those issues. Actually, after the George Floyd um, murder um, with the protests, I had one of my, one student in like sociology to 12 last year, and he was literally a quiet one. He was in the back of the room. I didn't even think he cared. <laughs> and he sent me a, such a heartwarming message who said, you know, now I can talk to my racist families. Like I'm equipped to know what to tell them when they're denying mm. systemic uh, racism in this country. Thank you so much. And then in his email too, he was kind. He was asking me, how are you holding up? Because I do get pretty passionate and emotional at times in those classes, especially when I'm discussing topics that are pretty personal to me. Sure. So he was checking up on me. So, I mean, this class, definitely it's my favorite. Like I felt like it's one of those that if I can make a difference in one student, I know as cliche as that sound, um, it's worth um, the profession that I chose. And, and your doctoral dissertation was titled Healthy Immigrants Exploring Country of Origin pre-immigration experiences, and acculturation in relationship to U.S. immigrants' health. I'm curious, what did you find in that work? So what I found, I mean, this this was a um, quantitative uh, research work where I use a nationally representative um, data set to analyze um, ex- um, different um, immigrants' groups and their experiences in the U.S. So what I found that um, even though in the literature and a lot of scholarly works, they talk about the healthy migrant effect, like migrants tend to be healthier than native-born um, Americans. I, I found actually Black immigrants might not be experiencing the same sort of positive outcome as other group of immigrants that those studies are based on. A lot of the studies were based on mostly um, Hispanic immigrants. So not a lot of focus on black immigrants. So that's, that's what I found. And actually I, I found even, um, for instance, um, Cuban, um, which they have a really high profile socioeconomically, um, and they have high level of depressive symptoms compared to other groups that Haitian or Jamaicans will have a lower socioeconomic profile here. So these are, there were some of significant findings from that, from that research work. Um, but again, that, that's just a starting point. The, my dissertation, it's what it really the scaffold to continue to investigate that further because there are a lot of questions from my dissertation that I need to continue to answer. Well, we are at question 13, and this is a, a rare a moment where I get to ask a split 13 question. So I think it would be great if you both answered this. But uh, I'm curious in the past six, month with, six months um, with everyone dealing with the emergence of COVID-19 and the global pandemic, um, how you've seen that impact the populations that you study. So, you know, for Professor Ines, I'm curious how you've seen the impacts on immigrants um, and Professor um, Harrington Meyer, I'm, I'm curious what you've seen as far as grandparents and, and elderly. Um, anything, any any light you can shed on this, or any things that you've seen that have been of interest? Yeah, so I mean, the research is out already on the impact that COVID nineteen have on minor, minoritized cool 
and of course, black immigrants. And, and I can tell you even anecdotally, I know from my relatives living in, in Brooklyn, New York, they they having a harder time um, even to follow the CDC guidelines of social distancing. How do you social distance when you rent a room in somebody's apartment and you're sharing a bathroom with four others? How do you work remotely if you're a cashier at the supermarket? So I, I already know there is an impact. So actually, currently, I'm working on a project where I will be interviewing um, immigrants group and to see um, their experiences with COVID-19. Even if they weren't the, um, they didn't catch the virus, even just having a family member or even just trying to social distance or wearing masks or taking public transportation, all, all those all other aspects of their lives. And I, I just want to hear um, from them. So I'm, I'm about to, in a, a month or so, I'm going to start interviewing um, some immigrants um, and just to see their experiences with the, uh, with the pandemic. I think the impact on grandparents has also, that research is already in. There's already a great deal of, of information about how that's going. As I mentioned earlier, some grandparents are in a separate bubble, so they are pining, aching to see their grandchildren. And other grandparents are in the same bubble and they actually can hardly get a break from their grandchildren. <laughs> One of the concerns I have in particular for grandparents who are taking care of children with disabilities is that a lot of the disability therapies got shut down. So a lot of children used to get their therapy while they're at school or after school. And those were considered sort of non-essential things. And as things, as schools shut down and as clinics and doctor's offices shut down, those therapies weren't available. And so they're starting to be a little bit more available now, but a lot of the grandchildren might be really struggling from lack of PT and OT and music therapy and all these different therapies that have helped to sort of stabilize and standardize their days and regulate their days. So I'm, I'm particularly concerned um, with grandparents who are struggling with grandchildren who need and aren't getting various forms of therapy. Interesting. Well, that was 13. Thank you so much, professors, for joining me today for this uh, remote recording and continued thanks to our listeners for bearing with us as we do these Zoom recordings these days. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like to hear answered, please feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And I also want to take a moment here to continue to send our best wishes to everyone uh, out there listening to the show. Be well. And until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.